Hello, this is Tara Nevins from Dawn of the Buffalo, and you're listening to Community Radio, WMNF Tampa. Here comes the sun, here comes the sun, I say it's all right. Hello and welcome to the Sustainable Living Show on WMNF Tampa 88.5, where every Monday at 11 we bring you a conversation with local experts on sustainable issues. Today we are talking with Anita Camacho, owner of Little Red Wagon Native Nursery and president and founder of the Tampa Bay Butterfly Foundation Incorporated and the Tampa Bay chapter of the North American Butterfly Association. All things butterfly, all yes. the time. And that, of course, is Annie Ellis, and I am Kenny Coogan. And Happy New Year, everyone. Happy New Year, Kenny. And, uh, Annie, something that I wanted to say, but okay. we, we might have, should have said this last week. All right. Was about our cold weather and about... Yeah, it's going to be 80 today. <laughs> and about taking care of plants that might have been damaged by the cold. Oh, right. And it's uh, preferred that you actually don't touch them, don't yes. prune them back, because it kind of gives them a Do little... Do nothing. A little insulation, and also you don't want to encourage new growth now, because we could be cold again. Right, you don't want to fertilize at this time of the year either, because again, you'll encourage new growth. And And when you cut, you know, you're exposing that tip... So, you know, we're going to get cold again. We're going to get cold probably, I always uh, say uh, March 15th. Exactly, yep. The Ides of March. It's just a good number to remember because we get freezes, uh, you know, up into March a lot of times. So that's my number. Yes. So uh, You got my number. <laughs> so don't touch those plants that have been affected by the cold. And also some of those really big plants, they might not even show their cold stress damage for a couple more weeks. Right, till all the leaves drop <laughs> on the ground. And I just think you should leave the leaves on the ground too, because it's going to protect the roots and it's going to be, you know, a mulch and a compost. So unless it's a buggy situation or, you know, fun, fungus situation, I think the leaves should stay as well, in my opinion. Yes. And akin to bugs, we're going to be talking about butterflies today. Yes, ma'am. So stay Stay tuned as we promote a balance of people, profit, and planet. Yes, I wanted to talk about what I did this weekend because it was so great. Went to an herb walk with Bob uh, Lindy, who was on our show a couple of weeks ago. And it was over in St. Pete, and it was magnificent. There was probably about 40 people. And I want to tell you, a lot of them said they found out about it from this show. So that was a really good news to me that we're doing something for the community um, that they're able to to go do this. And I just learned so much uh, about it. It was fantastic. And then the bonus, uh, right down the street uh, is where my friend, uh, our friend, Alicia uh, Bixler lives. She has another name on there too. You know, we triple our names. And uh, she is a bee saver and a beekeeper. And so I went over to her house and she's also a garden designer. It's gorgeous. Uh, and so I went over and talked to her and bought some honey and so on. And she's going to be on our show, too. So she's going to come on, uh, I think it's the 26th of January. Yeah, just in a couple weeks. Yeah. So it was just a great, great uh, time. I just love it. And it was just, you know, on New Year's Day because I don't have hangovers. <laughs> <laughs> It was great. So I guess we need to, since Anita is here live and in person, we need to introduce her. And uh, unless you wanted to say anything, Kenny, did you have anything you want to talk about? Okay. And so 
Uh, we have uh, Anita on uh, today, and she is, uh, again, I repeat that she is uh, uh, the owner of Little Red Wagon Native Nursery. And I believe that's the only native nursery in the area and uh, president of the uh, uh, the founder and founder of the Tampa Bay Butterfly Foundation and North America Butterfly Association, Tampa Bay Chapter. Because there's a, a butterfly uh, association throughout the United States, from what I understand as well. So we'll, uh, we'll find out about that. But she's a lifelong Floridian from the Tampa Bay area. And her uh, whole organization is to conserve butterflies, monitor populations, restore plant uh, and, and plant their habitats, and educating the public to explain the importance of the ecosystems. And so we, you know, went through all this and we thought of a few questions. So, of course, we'll start with some questions and then we'll just talk about whatever we want to talk about uh, re- related to uh, sustainability. So uh, how did you get started working with butterflies and native plants and why? And wasn't there something about chemicals in the environment that got your attention? Well, yes, I've always been a gardener since I was a kid and um, grew up out in the outdoors, riding horses all over the place. So I got to spend a lot of time in nature, which is fun. And uh, so over time, I kind of evolved and and gravitated towards native plants more and more, um, especially since I've always been a butterfly gardener also. Oh, okay. So it's rose gardening, butterfly gardening, kind of kept them separate, and eventually it's it's more butterfly gardening and not She was an expert rosarian, by the way. Well, I guess I still am, but yeah. I just don't spend as much time with the roses as right. I used to. Right. So, uh, and and in South Tampa, I have a small lot, as most yes. people do, with a lot of great oak trees, which is fantastic. But uh, so not a lot of sun. So anything uh, sun loving is usually in butterflies. So since they're solar powered, but I've just always enjoyed uh, the beauty of nature. Butterflies are non-threatening. They're just stunning and beautiful to have in your yard, and and it's just a lot of fun. Yeah, they are beautiful, and it's so nice to start to, you know, once you get into it, to start to recognize which ones are what, and, you know, what, because there's some of them that look really similar when you're not trained, Uh, and then you start to understand their, uh, what, what they their host food is and so on and so on. Uh, so, um, well, you mentioned um, so about the chemicals. Yes, so thank you. I want you to talk. That's about probably that. um, that's probably the biggest uh, pivotal point in my life. Uh, actually, was uh, when my mother was diagnosed with Parkinson's um, mm-hmm. at age fifty, and uh, that so was pretty young. rough. Very yeah. young, and um, I didn't understand the disease, so I did a lot of research trying to understand it. What does this mean for her? Is this hereditary? Is it going to affect me, my children? What can I do to prevent it? And everything kept pointing to toxic pesticide exposure. And um, being an avid gardener herself and my grandmother as well, um, that's what was promoted. Use this chemical to kill this yes. and, and use this chemical to kill that and put this on your grass. Be, you know, yeah. heaven forbid we let anything live, right, yeah. on this planet. So unfortunately, it's a very negative effect yes. um, for her and a lot of other people. Um, Parkinson's isn't the only thing that toxic pesticide exposure contributes to. Yes. A lot of neurological diseases. So that's a big part of our our base of, of why we're trying to get more Florida native, put back in the ecosystem, help our natural environment, because it ultimately, we're the top of the food chain. So if we're helping the bottom of the food chain, the bugs, we're helping ourselves. Yeah. And, you know, too, the thing is, is that when you make everything a sterile environment, um, all the predatory insects are killed, too. And so then they're not able to take care of the pest insects. And also, 
you know, the insects feed the birds. So, you know, it's this perfect circle of situation that if we start with one thing, we have to continue. That's why I think that so many people do get in that loop of the chemical chain because they kill everything and then everything goes, you know, terribly wrong. So well, that's one of the things I found with rose gardening. Yes. Because at the time um, I was doing my research, I, I, I was terrified. So I stopped using all chemicals at that point. And I didn't really have another solution for the roses. So I thought, well, this is it. I'm, I'm done growing roses, right? And I just deadheaded and, and watered. I didn't do anything else. Threw some banana peels out, a little compost on top a little of the potassium. Mulch, and that's yeah. about it. And um, I found six months later, the roses got stronger. Yeah. And what was really interesting to me, as and, and you just don't think about things sometimes, you're just following a prescription and you continue doing that cycle, is the roses were stronger because they have their own defense mechanisms. And what's the, these chemicals are stripping the plants of their ability to defend themselves. Thank you. So consequently, you let the plants defend themselves and they actually can. And I also found... With companion planting, with the butterfly plants, most of the pests, we'll call it, yeah. or, or what I do. Ones I love that the we bugs. don't want, right? Well, yeah. I want all the, the bugs. The so general that's population, right. let's just say. But what, what's interesting is they want the butterfly plants. Yeah. So they don't, I haven't had fungus, I haven't had thrips, I haven't had aphids, any mm-hmm. of those things on my roses ever since. And that's been over 25 years now. See, so that's so. the thing. It's like when you said it took six months for this to happen. I think people are into such a, an automatic, um, they need a, the response immediately. You know, they want a, a, something to happen now. They see a problem and they, or what they perceive as a problem, and they don't wait it out, you know, for everything to catch up with itself. And so that is just, that's across the board. I mean, you were talking about roses, but that's mm-hmm. just across the board with all plant materials for sure. Yeah, there's a carnivorous plant nursery. It's the oldest one in the U.S. It's in California. And like the Discovery Channel went to them and said, hey, we want to do a TV show about you. And then the owner said, okay, how long are you going to be here? They said, we'll be here the whole month. He goes, nothing happens in a month for plants. You would have to come here, you know, one day a month for two years to see the seeds and to see the flowers and to see us propagating. And he says, you know, you can't just take a little snapshot for one month and see stuff change for plants. And that makes a lot of sense because, you know, because as a society, we do expect quick... We need to be patient. Yes, we need to be patient. And people, you know, automatically just, oh, I'm not patient. But they just don't... It's a the nature process takes time, and I know stripping uh, the plants of their ability to fend for themselves is just a real setup. It really is. Yes, well, you mentioned a cycle, right, um, of timing of a, of a couple years, or mm-hmm. and native plants. There's a saying of sleep, creep, leap. Yeah, which is a three year cycle for oh, a lot of three plants. Years. For the the first year they're sleeping, you'll see a little bit of activity above ground but not a lot, where the roots are really getting established to sustain the growth up above the ground. And the second year, they kind of creep along. And the third year, they, they kind of really show you what they're capable of. So it's, it's a really interesting thing to, to watch, um, but it does take time and does take patience. Yeah, it's interesting because when you're talking about that, I, I have gotten a lot of native plants from you, actually. And, um, and some of them don't do well. And uh, at first, you know, and but then I've noticed recently, uh, and I think I'm in the two-year end of that, that a lot of those are becoming their own. You know, I can see them starting back up, and they look really good. Mm-hmm. They're not just a transplanted plant anymore. They're on their own, and mm-hmm. they are doing fantastically. And I, 
I did not know that, that it was a three-year cycle. But, you know, everything's like that. I, I think it took me 10 years for my carambola to start to do a lot. Mm-hmm. That's a star fruit tree, y'all, <laughs> And in case you didn't know. And, you know, there's just a lot of things that are like that. But, I, yeah, I, I didn't even think about it, and this is kind of my gig, you know? <laughs> so today we're talking about butterflies, and uh, we're talking with Anita. But I first want to know how many butterfly species do we have in Central Florida can we see them all year round? And then, because we're all in the studio, I'm passing around my phone because I took a picture of a monarch chrysalis yes. yesterday. And I'm at your house? Yeah, oh, my neighbor's house. Oh, how lovely. But, um, and I'm going to send it to Annie right now so she can put it in the show notes. It's so beautiful. But, it looks like a little piece of jewelry. Okay, so Anita, how many species do we have? And should we be sad or concerned for this little chrysalis that it's January 1st? In okay. Central Florida. Well, first we have um, resident species, about 125 in Central Florida, give or take, and um, about 200 that f- that migrate through the state. So there's a lot of species here, uh, a lot of opportunity. And it really, as far as are they here all year, some species are. Some species overwinter in chrysalis, a lot of the, all the swallowtails in our area, which are eight Different species of swallowtail, they overwinter in chrysalis. Wait a minute. You mean that they make their chrysalis before it gets cold, they stay in that little chrysalis the whole winter? Correct. Wow. Yeah. Is this above ground or? Yes. Wow. I'm so surprised. And they, they're, most of their chrysalis are brown. Some are green, but they'll uh, blend in with dead twigs and things. So when you're, you're pruning, maybe too early, mm-hmm. um, or pruning those dead sticks, a lot of times there are chrysalis hanging from them and they blend right in. So it's it's one of the reasons that you want to wait till spring. So those butterflies have an opportunity when the war- weather warms, they're going to typically emerge. So, um, And some will overwinter in caterp- caterpillar phase um, and use leaf litter. And a lot of species actually use uh, butterflies and moths will use leaf litter as the host plant. I'm glad you mentioned that because that was about, were you going to say that too, Ken? I'm going to read an email. Oh, oh, about okay. leaf litter. Oh, great. Okay, <laughs> good. Well, then I will will hold my tongue. Okay, it's it's a short one. It's from uh, Rachel Cameron. She's a sound operator. She says leaves are part of nature's work. It's best to leave them there. That's why they're called leaves. <laughs> I love it. That's great. Leave. Right. So thank you, Rachel, for that. And we do want to encourage, if anyone has ever seen a butterfly, (laughs) has anyone ever grown plants for butterflies, you can be part of the show by calling 813-239-9663, or you can send us an email at dj at wmnf.org, and we will read it on air. Well, that encompasses everyone, doesn't it? (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. So uh, why are, or how are butterflies important for our sustainable future, uh, Well, Anita? they're sort of a, bed, a bellwether of our ecosystem, oh. right? So they're, they're telling you how things are going. So when you see in insects, uh, we're losing populations of many species, yes. not just butterflies and bees, but many species are affected, um, probably most with all the chemicals and uh, different things in our in our uh, air systems and water. So it's it's just real important for pollination. I think butterflies specifically are, you know, uh, an indicator of how things are going. So the more butterflies you see, the better things are going. Mm-hmm. Uh, they need habitat. That's that's the thing that almost all species on the planet need. And that's been, a, you know, going away faster and faster as the human population grows. Yeah. And what we need to do instead of planting a lot of exotics that are, you know, maybe fun to look at, uh, the reality is it's not doing anything to benefit our our local ecosystem. And Florida's got a very special ecosystem with, you know, being kind of a floating state and uh, a lot of different types of terrain here. Um, 
we can plant just about anything, you know, in Florida and it will live. That, it's interesting you just said that. I'd like to elaborate on uh, it's important to plant the, the local uh, uh, fauna because we want... They respond to that more, don't they? I mean, well, you they know, need it. They need it. Mm-hmm. So when, you are, when you're thinking about, uh, you know, helping um, all the critters, you know, w- butterflies included, uh, having the native is super important. And why is that? I mean, what is that about? Well, butterflies, um, a little bit different than moths. They're in the same family, Lepidoptera. But butterflies specifically, uh, they're specialists. So they typically will have one host plant, sometimes a couple, but for the most part, they're specialist species. So unlike moths, which can be more generalist and go for a lot of different um, types of plants that they can eat. So like most people are familiar with the monarch, they need milkweed. Right, and there's um, a lot of milkweeds. Or milk vine. We have Florida native <clears throat> milk vines as well. So that's a critical plant for them, and they need native. It's healthier for them. Thank you. And, we'll talk um, about that as well. And it's, you know, native plants are not invasive. So right. that's a, it's a real important uh, component for the, the health of our environment is to give them the native plants that they evolved with. And then why wouldn't we have, uh, why would we not want to encourage or why do we want to discourage the use of the uh, exotic um, uh, milkweeds? Well, similar- And those are the ones that people usually buy. Well, that's more readily available in the big box stores and and most nurseries. Um, And as you mentioned earlier, we're the only native nursery in Hillsborough County. Um, So, which is part of why I started that, because I was driving all over the state to get plants. That makes sense. And especially for the butterfly clubs and stuff. So it just, um, they need their native plants. And it's similarly, if we go out of the country to certain countries, we have to get shots in order to, you know, protect ourselves immune-wise. So the same thing with plants, when you take them from one area where they're native to, to another, well, they don't have the same defense mechanisms, so this is what happens with a lot of people with exotic plants. They, they figure they don't have a green thumb because, you know, and they take a leaf or something into a store and they say they prescribe a, a, a pesticide or an herbicide or a fungicide or mm-hmm. something mm-hmm. for, you know, to take care of that plant or pest. Mm-hmm. Um, and unfortunately, that's what, what happens to a lot of exotics. They just can't defend themselves the well, same and, way. Well, I was specifically thinking about the uh, milkweeds that they're selling in the big box stores, and it's really bad for their health. We have a call right now, sure. but if we could touch back on that, that'd Absolutely. be awesome. All right, so we have uh, Tom on line one. Hi, Tom. Hey, Tom. Hey, yeah. Do you uh, have... I hope that- do you know about butterflies or have a question about yeah. butterflies? I, I sure do. Great. I, I actually have two questions. Uh, my, uh, I hope that uh, maybe you'll touch on if there's any, I, I heard you say that there's uh, butterflies that are pretty specialized, but I wonder if there's any kind of uh, native plant that attracts more than one kind of butterfly. But my, uh, my main question is, um, my daughter used to have butterflies land on her uh, quite often. That's it's so sweet. Uh, often, and I'm, I'm wondering, being a butterfly expert, is that rare? Do they like to land on people? Is it is it the common? Uh, can you tell me something about that? They land Great. on me too. Great questions, Tom. All right, so Anita, uh, the first question: Can well, you have a plant that hosts and feeds more than one species? Yes. So similar to milkweed, and when we talked about that earlier, um, milkweed hosts both the queen, actually three different butterflies in Florida, but in our area is the queen butterfly and the monarch. And in further south Florida, the soldier butterfly as well. All three of those are milkweed butterflies in our state. Um, other plants, there's um, passion vines. The native passion vines host the long-winged butterflies, which we have four species of long wings in the state of Florida. 
our state butterfly, the zebra longwing, and the gulf fritillary, the variegated fritillary, and the julia longwing. So there's quite a few plants that host multiple species. Uh, I wanted to also say that a lot of times when people have those, they panic because the point of having those is as a host for the caterpillars, the butterfly, and they're going to eat them. So people go, oh, my God, they're, my, my plant's dying, you know, and so you just have to know you put it there for the food for the butterfly, and it will come back, and if it won't, you can get another one. So, Anita, why would a butterfly land on a person was Tom's second question. Well, we have a lot of salt we're sweating out of our skin. Oh. And butterflies need, especially the males, need salt for breeding. So a lot of times they'll actually, you'll, if you look close, sometimes their proboscis is actually touching your skin and they're getting salt off your skin. They land on me all the time. I you're guess I'm salty. Very salty. very salty. I've been told, I've been called worse. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Thank you, Tom. Wonderful. Thank you. Have a great day. All right. So um, we have another call? Not yet, but okay. first... Um, Annie was talking about, um, uh, about tropical the, milkweed. The tropical so milkweed. Yeah. where is tropical milkweed from and why is it not the best thing well, to be Central growing? Central America, so that's where it's from. Um, part of the problem is that it's, it escapes um, with its seeds, flies through the air, and, it, and it's It goes sinking. everywhere. It does, and it, and it, very, it, it recedes very easily and it grows very quickly. Mm-hmm. And so consequently, it's taking over native areas and eradicating some of the native plants. And that's the thing we have to remember. When we talk about invasive species, the reason why we don't want an invasive species is it interacts or takes over the area where the native would be because it's stronger, because it's doesn't it, it's going crazy. And so that's why we don't want to have it. So go ahead. I'm sorry. It, is it classified as an invasive or? Not yet in Florida. In California, it's, it's been declared as an invasive. Um, they're a little bit further along with those um, <laughs> issues there than we are here in Florida, uh, especially with the issues they've had with the with the Western migration of monarchs. Um, but it also uh, the the OE spores, which is a parasitic disease, reproduce a lot faster on that milkweed than they do. Uh, that di- that parasite is actually a natural occurring um, uh, issue on milkweed in general, whether it's native or not. However, yeah. like red tide. You know, that's a natural occurring event. But with the fertilizers, it's a much more problematic event. So similarly, uh, the spores reproduce a lot faster on that milkweed here. The plant doesn't have the same defense mechanisms as it does in Central America. I've understood and uh, tell everybody this, so I hope I'm right, is to cut it all back in October and then let that come back in the spring. You don't agree with that? I know. Pull it out. Just pull it out. Okay. I like that better. I mean, it, the, <laughs> Just don't the, have it, it. It's still going to reproduce the spores the same way. Okay. Um, Even and, in and the, the summer. The reason a lot of people were saying cut it back is because they're concerned about the migrating monarchs okay. eating it, but that is false. Okay. Migrating monarchs are um, when they're when they're migrating south and heading to Mexico, they're in reproductive diapause. There's some discussion that perhaps the native, the the tropical milkweed pulls them out of diapause and keeps them trapped here in Florida, and maybe there's some cases where that could happen. But um, we've got an uh, an evergreen milkweed, Asclepias perennis, also known as aquatic milkweed, that is here all year long. Is that the white one? Mm-hmm. Yeah, blooms white. So that plant's been here much longer than the introduction of the tropical milkweed. So that really doesn't make a lot of sense. Okay. So that milkweed would then do the same thing as tropical milkweed. Um, I heard it was like if they ate hamburgers every day. It's just not a healthy source for Correct. them. Correct. It, it, it's, you know, why would you want to eat something that makes you sick? 
Well, a lot of people do it. I don't. I know, but. True, but but at the same time, you know, it's it's definitely increased the disease disease okay. rate based on studies I've been participating in over the past several years. Um, just in the seven or eight years I participated in studies, we've gone from about a sixty percent in, uh, rate of OE positive in wow, Central Florida to that's a lot to eighty to ninety percent. That's a lot. In South Florida, it's a hundred percent. Oh my gosh! So that's our resident monarch, though. Yeah. So, so very different from the migrators. When do the migrating monarchs move so the migrating monarchs are going to move north from mexico around late february march really depends on weather and the cues they get from the sun um, when they start making that move and um, they'll head north and lay their eggs at the border and next generation starts in we'll get a small amount of the migration here in florida but not a huge number that's a beautiful thing to see uh, i've never been there but i've seen all the pictures of all those butterflies on all the trees it's amazing yeah. Pretty Solid. fantastic. It really is. Do you know how many uh, resident monarchs we have compared to the migrant? Migrant, like if you see one, if you see a monarch butterfly, how do you know in the yard? Do they have a passport? Yeah. <laughs> well, typically, um, you know, if they're laying eggs in the spring, it could be either a resident or the or the migrators. That could happen. Um, could be either one. But come, you know, summer to fall and winter, those are definitely not the migrating monarchs. And the migrators are a lot larger in size than our resident monarchs. You can't, it's hard to tell unless you get them side by side, but, but there's a big size difference between them. We do have an email and it's from Mary. She wanted to say that she read that she should cut back the tropical milkweed to six inches to prevent diseases. Have you ever heard of that? Well, that's, that's a common thing that's been discussed is cutting it back. Really, I mean... Well, she specifically said six inches, so I don't know if that was... I mean, that's just to, to keep cut the, plant, the flowers off. That's just yeah. to keep the plant viable. You cut it much further, okay. you might not have much plant there at all. But, but, but Anita just says, pull them out. Yeah. She but, does, don't, don't even have those tropical milkweeds here. And then Mary adds, she loves butterflies and she has pentas and milkweeds and she would love to add more. Where is the best place to put them should they be in pots in the ground, and should they be facing east or a specific direction? <laughs> All of the above <laughs> for prayer. I mean, really, you can uh, you know there's species of milkweed that do really well in drought conditions. Um, the Asclepias tuberosa likes it a lot drier and sunny. Um, uh, the one I just mentioned a, a few minutes ago, the white flowering Asclepias perennis, the aquatic milkweed, really does. Uh, well, in any condition, Florida throws at it. It can be in the ditch, in a swamp. It can be it's drought tolerant. Oh, really? Oh, to some wow. extent as well. So when those ditches are dry yeah, for several months out of the sense. year during drought times of the year, they're not getting any water. Yeah. Uh, they only grow to about two feet, but they're evergreen and they grow in the sun, the shade, and and partial sun. So they really take anything Florida has to throw There's at it. There's a lot of different types, which I did not know about. And they're beautiful too. They're very, uh, and they're not that hard to grow. I mean, so, if so people, in ground or pots. Yeah, so if people want to grow pots too. Pots too. the correct types of milkweed, one problem I see is somebody buys one plant mm. or even five plants, then they all get eaten. And then these people are holding like a handful of caterpillars and they say, we're in, we're in an emergency. We need to do something. And then they can't find milkweed. So before we- They ta- call me for my giant milkweed leaves. That's so be- what they do. Before we do that, Anita, how do people propagate milkweed or like where do we be- get seeds and you know, how can we make it easier the for native, people the to- The native varieties- yeah. Well, what happens, I find, is typically the f- when people first initially get started and they plant milkweed, they get found by a monarch. Each female is going to lay about 400 eggs. So you get egg bombed. 
because the female's going, oh, yay, I found food for my babies. Mm-hmm. And then this is what starts. So what happens is people will buy more milkweed, typically speaking, initially. And then they kind of say, this is a lot. I don't want to keep spending money on buying more plants. But they also start protecting those caterpillars from predators, which is not a good idea. Yeah, because you you don't think that home rearing uh, butterflies is well, that's a good contributing idea. to the OE rise. Oh, okay, and mm-hmm. why is that? Um, well, you're taking animals out of their natural habitat. You're raising wild animals, basically, and um, people aren't necessarily doing it properly. They're not trained um, as professional breeders and taking precautions to protect them from the disease spread. And they're also rearing them in mass quantities and small containers that. You know, the monarchs don't respond well to. And probably if one of them had it, then they're passing it on. Oh, for sure. Yeah, so that's the that's not an isolation situation. So I need to reintroduce us. And uh, I am Annie Ellis, and you're l- listening to The Sustainable Living Show on WMNF Tampa 88.5. Today's guest is Anita Camacho, o- owner of Little Red Wagon Native Nursery and president of uh, and founder of Tampa Bay Butterfly Foundation Incorporated and North American Butterfly Association uh, chap- uh, Tampa Bay chapter. If you want to be part of this conversation, please give us a call at 813-239-9663. Text us at 813-433-0885 or send us an email at dj at wmnf.org and we will read it on the air. So there's been some talk about rewilding spaces and we just got an email from Joe in Denver, Florida. He says, the way most people treat their yards is destroying the order of species that would normally protect plants. I personally only mow my land close to my house and to keep the rodents away from my house. The rest of my two acres I mow twice a year, but don't cut it short. All of the plants do extremely well with nothing but nature. And then he goes on to talk about how his neighbor's using a lot of pesticides and they're cutting all the time. In my yard, I see butterflies all the time. And in their yard, I see very few. I've been observing this for 16 years. So, Anita, Anita, how big of a meadow do we need to attract butterflies? Well, you really can do uh, butterfly gardening in as simple as one single pot with a nectar plant and host plant Um, on a balcony. The butterflies will find you, especially monarchs. They can fly up to 10,000 feet. So... You can you can do this in any any size manner you want, um, and you use the space you have, you know. And if you want to just dedicate a corner to butterfly gardening, that's fine too. Um, you know, they just need habitat, and the more corridors they can have of this habitat, the better, so mm-hmm. that you can start to spread the wealth with neighbors and so forth, um, providing habitat for them, and and then they're not egg bombing just your plants. And and really, what happens when we talk about the egg bombing? I didn't uh, finish that piece was. Uh, the predators don't show up immediately. They don't know that there's a food source there. And and caterpillars are a massive food source, very important. And so when the predators find it, really like wasps, for example, they're they're plant protectors. So what that does is it balances the population. You don't want all 400 of each of those eggs to live. Oh, I see what you're saying. So you're saying that's why one of the biggest reasons is not to bring them in because you're overdoing it, Mm -hmm. whereas you're taking away also the food source from the other predatory animals. Well, and it also helps, you know, in my example of the wasp, they help with, you know, disease, you know, 
uh, oh, control and yeah, I they have them give the plants time to come back. So you're sure. not spending a fortune buying plants. It, it naturally, the, what happens typically after you get through the first few months, the predators discover there's a food source. And also the other thing you were saying that people keep going and buying milkweed plants, you know, they need to buy other types of plants. Uh, there needs to be uh, uh, nectar plants. You don't have to just be the host plant for everything. And then you can get other host plants for other butterflies. But nectar plants are very important as Absolutely. well. Absolutely, because that's what keeps the adults hanging around. Exactly. And and two, yeah, monarch. the monarch's not the only butterfly. As we mentioned earlier, there's a lot of other species Beautiful you can plant ones. for. And that also helps take the focus off a single butterfly. Exactly. Because truly we're loving the monarch to death at you, this point. We really are. When you said 100% OE in uh, South Florida, I was just, oh my God, that's horrible. So we have a couple phone calls, I understand. Yes, we do. And uh, first I wanted to say when that's Anita was- That's a beautiful was, picture of all this. Anita was talking about uh, creating habitats. I've told this to Anita many times. <laughs> because I have- because I keep so many uh, dead logs and branches. and He has a large property. Yeah. And because of that, I saw a hummingbird two days ago. Lovely. But um, probably once a month, I can go around in the yard and find where all of the tiger swallowtails and zebra longwinds sleep at night. I see maybe 15, 20 of them, mm-hmm. right at dusk. They all like kind of congregate and then they all go upside down and then they find all these dead branches and twigs and you can oh, see, it's like a flock. That is so sweet. Yeah, they roost together. That is so sweet. And you sweet. know, a flock of butterflies actually called a kaleidoscope. Isn't that cool? Oh, that I, is You know, cool. Anita, I knew that about 20 years ago, but thank you for reminding me. <laughs> there it is. I brought it back to life. Yes. <laughs> a resurgence of no, color. It's, it's a really neat thing, I think. It is. It's, yes. it's, it's called a kaleidoscope. That's beautiful. Very good. All right, so on line one, we we have Paul. Hi, Paul. Hey, gang. Hey, uh, Happy New Year. This is Paul Zamoda in Riverview. Oh, hello. Paul, all right. Thanks for calling in. Howdy. Yeah, Howdy. Um, one of my um, favorite butterflies is the zebra swallowtail. That's yeah. different from the zebra longwing, which is fairly common. But your zebra swallowtails are, are threatened, and, and it really concerns me because the host plants are the all the various uh, pawpaws, we call them, the Asimina genus of uh, fruit, small fruit trees. Um, developers are like just tearing up the habitat because it's really ideal for building. You know, it's like upland and sandy and well drained. So they put them, they'll just bulldoze it, and there go your butterflies. So, as a uh, quasi professional entomologist and also a uh, fruit gardener, I have soursop trees here. And um, one day I noticed a zebra swallowtail paying particular interest to this tree, and I got some photos of her ovipositing on it, which blew my mind because I had never heard of this. But the trees are related to the pawpaw. That is so interesting. Family. Wow. And I, I was able, able to actually raise larvae to adulthood on the soursop trees. That's, that's incredible. Her, it's, it's really, and I really wanted to share that with the listeners because the more... We give this butterfly a chance to survive. Um, you know, we, we'll still have it around. It's so fascinating to see it. It's just black and white stripes with the long tails. It's a real fast. It really flyer. is gorgeous. 
it's really fantastic. And yeah, that's my favorite butterfly. Really? I say the rest yeah. are my second favorite. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's interesting, Paul, that you're talking about these specifics because those are not trees that people in general uh, plant. Uh, so, you know, it's so important for us to think about that because that, that also touches on the everybody just goes out and gets all this monarch stuff, you know, but they're not I considering know. the host plant for all these other um you know, butterflies, and that is an absolute gem of a butterfly. Yeah, yeah the Atalas are coming back because people are planting more coontis, which are the cycad that's that's native to Florida, and that's a good thing. Yeah. I put some in here. I planted some here. I grew from seed, and I don't know if I'll get Atalas in my lifetime, but it, the welcome mat oh. is out for <laughs> yeah, yeah. Anita's shaking her head no. <laughs> Sorry, they're not. They're probably not going to make it to Riverview, but it's too cold. but it's still well. They're a little further south. We have had pocket populations in Zone yeah. Ten uh, around, but Pinellas you never know with the climate change. You know, it could it could happen exactly because we have we have tegu lizards here. We yeah, have, yeah, they're growing citrus up in Georgia now. So what the heck? Yeah. Anything's so, possible, and yeah. I never give up. I never give up. Uh, we love that about you, Paul. <laughs> so Thank be, you for wait, calling. Before, Paul, you go, I have a question. Obviously, you had at least one male and one female zebra swallowtail, but did you see 10 of them? Did you only see the eggs? Did you? How often you know, do you see them? I ha- You know, it's a shame, but I haven't seen any in over a year and a half oh. now. At first, when we moved here in, in late 90s, I would see up to five broods a year. You would see, the, and they, each brood adults are larger and larger, and then they then they go away for the winter, and then they come back in the spring. But the females are the only ones attracted to the plant itself. Yeah, because they're the and egg layers. What, well, the, yeah, they, they have to have that for their for their babies. But the males will hang around the tree, but they're cruising. They're real fast, and they and they they, they fly just above the ground. And they're look. I think they're looking for females. Mm-hmm. They're just they're just scouring the area. They know if there's a host plant nearby, there's liable to be females oh, that's, nearby. So that's interesting. They, yeah, they just pass through. But the females will gather here, and I would see one of each brood um, hanging around. And I also have pawpaw trees too, so I, yeah. have, I have a lot of scent for them to to attract to. But I haven't seen them lately, and I, it's it, it bothers. That's disturbing. Yeah, it, it is. That is. All the houses going up. It's, it's, well, a I lot know. of their habitats disappearing, the, and and they're very specific yeah. with the. I know uh, you're using soursop, or we're successful with that as well. But um, you're yeah. right on the pawpaws, and there's quite a few species of pawpaw in Florida. But um, nobody, unless you really are into it, plants that. They don't. They go and buy the. Well, five they do plants. once they realize what that butterfly looks well, like. Well, there you go. There you go. <laughs> Hopefully. Yeah, the, the the problem with the pawpaws is they're very hard to cultivate unless you're prof- professional level ten. They don't transplant well. They don't transplant at all. Should grow them from seed. Yeah, and getting the seed is the issue too. And yeah, you brought some the, from up north, didn't you? Well, yeah, that's the native, the the, the northern pawpaw. But uh, yeah. you can get the native, the native ones. But yeah, but any anything will help. Yeah, you have to keep keep. Keep the welcome mat out for them. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, Paul, for calling in. And you're since welcome. since you're online, since you're, you know, live, Paul, we really need you to be a guest on this show. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to put you on the spot. I've asked him twice. He said no. So we're going to ask him <laughs> online, on the air. Paul, we want you on this show. Yes. All right. We do have another call, and this is Kevin. Hi, Kevin. <laughs> yes, hi. Um, we got you in the middle of a cough. Yeah, you did. <laughs> so two-part question, probably a little white question. Um, 
my wife, Lonnie. Uh, first of all, happy new year here. I love, I love you. She's Thank you. Um, so I wanted to tell her that. Uh, but my daughter and my wife have been recently uh, on a quest in the Parish Florida area to try to catch a butterfly. So they're both listening right now, and I was hoping that you could give us some tips on how to catch them without harming. Why would you want to catch it? Just so that she could see it up close. Well, okay, that's that Anita answer. Yeah, She's Anita. the expert. Anita's the expert. <laughs> Thank you, Kevin. We're going to uh, answer your call off here because Thank there's some you. feedback. Yeah, there's a lot of feedback. All right, Anita. Well, um, well, it's I like, mean, you can imagine little children. They, sure. they love. We used to do that when I was a kid. Well, there oh, you yeah? go. You I can't mean. take that away from the children. <laughs> All right. So, Anita, what's the best way to look at butterflies, observe them now up close? I, now that I know better, I can do better. Well, there's a right? lot of ways. Um, you know, capturing wildlife is never, never uh, advisable. But I, I get the idea of, of wanting to see something up close. There are places you can go to the Butterfly Rainforest in Gainesville. Um, there's other butterfly conservatories around. We also have a butterfly, live butterfly exhibit at our uh, inside our Little Red Wagon Nursery. Um, that's, that's sponsored that's by the foundation. So you can actually come and see butterflies up close, the caterpillars eating their host plants, and the chrysalis hanging. And sometimes you get lucky and see something emerge from a chrysalis. She or has a, a lot in, a, in those uh, net bags. Yeah, a lot so of there's um, catching them, I wouldn't advise because you really can risk hurting them very easily. They, you know, it doesn't take much. You, you whack them with a net, and that could be the end of it. So mm -hmm. it, it, you know, we do on butterfly counts, we monitor, we follow them, um, you know, we wait for them to land and kind of get a good look at them when they land on a flower. And it takes patience. Um, she, you do. Um, we do have a couple of emails, but we also, I wanted to touch base on what you just said uh, about um, y'all are doing butterfly counts and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So, should we take the email? Go ahead. We'll go with this. Uh, you're doing the butterfly counts. You're uh, all through the state, I guess, and you have different people set up. How does that work? Well, we do um, the national... And what's um, the purpose? Yeah. The, well, the purpose is monitoring species and, and the populations, and they've been getting monitored for decades. Right. Um, so we continue to collect that data, report it up to North American Butterfly Association so that they can continue to provide that data for various studies at universities um, because it's been collected for so long. It is very valuable. That's great. Um, so... The July is the national count month, so that's a uh, you know a little more intense uh, when we're counting that day or those days in July around Florida. But the rest of the year we try to do um, butterfly walks, is what I call them, and those are educational, so folks can come out and learn. It's not so stressful. Um, we're not on a time crunch or anything. We Where just, do you go? We go various places um, around the Bay Area. Any mm -hmm. you know, we sometimes North Tampa, South Tampa, Fort Desoto. How did I find out about that? Uh, ButterflyTampa.com. We uh -huh. advertise those. Uh, we also have a newsletter. People can sign up for that to find out about events. Okay, and um, we'll have that on the blog so you can click into that. So that's a good way to learn the host plants. We call it learn the weeds, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Even, um, you know, this way you're learning the plants that the butterflies need as host plants. And like we said earlier, there's a lot of different species. So what I find is a lot of times people don't know what the host plants are. So once you start to identify those, you start to see those butterflies and um, it opens up everything with a new lens and, and people can see um, a lot more species that they, small ones that are smaller than the size of a dime. Yeah, those now, tiny ones are beautiful. Now, speaking of that, Anita, you what? might be mind reading, but we have multiple emails from okay. Jan and Clint and others, and they all would like you to rattle off a list of plants that provide nectar instead of the host plant. So th these people are specifically interested in what should they be buying and maybe what they should not be buying. 
Well, okay, so we'll regarding start. nectar, I well, guess. Right. So with nectar, so for example, monarchs, they're not really good at fluttering while they nectar, so they really need a landing pad. And larger flowers are really ideal for them. Things like starry rosin weed. Um, I know there's discussion about the blanket flower Gallardia not being a, a, a native plant well, any longer, but it is a very good nectar source. And, and it's been here a long time. And not considered invasive. Yeah. So that one's a really good one. Uh, Stokes Aster, some of the bigger flowers for the big for the monarch. Um, but for swallowtails, they can flutter the entire time they're nectaring. They love firebush. They love uh, tropical sage, those tubular flowers, because they have longer proboscis. Okay. So their longer proboscis is getting down into those tubular flowers. Uh, so really, it just depends on, on the species. Uh, tick seed is excellent for skippers. They really like that. Um, the, the number one um, butterfly attractor, in my opinion, as far as a uh, nectar plant, is what I call butterfly needles, known as Spanish needles. Oh, but the Biden's The scientific alba. name is Biden's alba. Yeah. That is a number three nectar, um, nectar source in Florida. That's, that's, a, that's, what I, that's what I cited a few weeks ago. And, you know, <laughs> it's also a wonderful medicine plant, and it's very edible. 100% edible. It's so delicious. Actually, the small greens are delicious. And I put the flowers in my salads. Yeah. And a little bit, in like 20 seconds, we're going to talk about events that are happening yeah. in Tampa. But first, I wanted to ask Anita, you know how there's a hummingbird feeders, which are basically like sugar feeders, right? Can and should people do something like that for butterflies? Like when you go to a butterfly... Uh, house, you'll see people have sliced oranges, flowers, and then sometimes they have like little uh, pools of sugar pads, or like sponges and stuff like that. Well, that's, those are in, you know, kind of to try to mimic the, you know, the great outdoors. There are some butterflies that live in orange groves or mango, mango groves and fruit groves. So they are nectaring on fruit, rotting fruit basically in the ground. So, you know, like the malachite in South Florida will use rotting fruit. A lot of, a lot of butterflies will. So it really, um, those in the butterfly houses, they're trying to provide extra nectar resources that the butterflies couldn't get to because they're being contained. Oh, okay. So in your, in your garden, it's just really better. They like flowers. Rotting fruit, you can put out rotting fruit, but other things are going to come to You're it. Gonna just got to know that. on it. I was wondering if the ants were on it, then wouldn't it attack the butterfly? No? Most of the time, there's for most ants, depends on the ant species. Um, there's a lot of ant species that are actually beneficial. And oh. um, they're opportunists in a way. Uh, on the cassia trees, per, for example, when the cloudless sulfurs or the orange-barred sulfur caterpillars Those are, are eating, so beautiful. When the caterpillars are eating the plant, the ants are nearby, and they're collecting the sugars that the butterfly caterpillars are are releasing from the plant, so the you know, so everybody's winning there. Yeah, in in that case, so it really just depends on the ant species. Some I mean, ant species are predatory and will eat the caterpillar. I didn't but. know that they let go of a a, a honeydew as mm-hmm. well. I know the aphids do. That's why they they farm them. But I did not know that they the caterpillars do that as well. But it makes sense. It's their excrement, right? Well, and aphids actually protect monarchs in the first and second instar. A lot of people like to squish them, which only reproduces the aphids a lot faster. The, so say that again. So aphids actually protect monarch caterpillars in the first and second instar because it gives them a camouflage. Uh, when wasps are looking for food, they're not going to see those little caterpillars. They're going to see the aphid resource, and they're going to eat the aphids. So y'all listen to that because everybody wants to go and pinch that whole top off of the area with all the aphids. They want to squeeze them out. So remember that they are protectors. 
Well, and they're also a big food source for, for so many things. I mean, my God, that's well, my ladybugs, hoverfly larvae, all of wing larvae. Yeah, there's just a lot of things. Birds will eat them. Yeah, uh, wasps eat them. There's just a lot of things that eat aphids. Yeah. and and it will tip. You know, the top of your plant will be. You know, will draw the sap out of the top of the plant, but nothing does does more damage to a, a milkweed than a monarch. You know? <laughs> that's true. All right, so uh, Anita, we want you to share some events that you are sponsoring. But first, we have an email, and this person said they started the car with the radio on right when we were talking about pawpaw, and they said that theirs looks pretty sad. Do the do they drop leaves in the winter time? Now, I don't know if yes. Anita or Annie are Papa experts, but I texted Paul, and Paul responded. Oh, he did. And awesome. Anita also is responding. Yes, they do. And Paul would just like to add that the sour sop is evergreen, so... Um, well, but the but the swallowtails are not going to be around in the winter. Yeah, so they they kind of coincide with the timing of their plants. There it is. It's so you're, you're just telling they're us they're overwintering in chrysalis, typically speaking. Um, and those plants actually make a comeback. And the only time the females are going to lay eggs on a pawpaw is when there's fresh growth. So there's actually a moth caterpillar that does a lot of trimming on those plants that encourages f- fresh new growth. And that's when the females will come and lay the eggs. So the the swallowtail the uh, Swallowtail is actually not pollinating the plant. It's actually pollinated by scarab beetles. So it's a really cool ecosystem all in and of itself that, that works, and everybody's working together. That is so interesting. See, that's that perfect circle. Mm-hmm. Each one helps the other by doing their job. So yeah. don't kill the bugs. All right, Anita, we only got about five minutes left, so can you got tell some events. Um, some events that are coming up? So we do a lot of different things. Uh, we do a lot of education, both adults and kids. This week we've got Winter Wonderland Camp, and you can sign up by the day or the week. We have an MLK camp coming up when the kids are out of school. So we don't just do summer camps. We do them throughout the year, uh, and those are a lot of fun. All the kids uh, get to release a butterfly, and they're getting up close with a lot of That's reptiles sweet. and other animals as well. So, so you, they, they would go to your website to be able to go on there and then right. seek out all the different odds and ends. Right, butterflytampa.com. And we do a lot of volunteer opportunities where we're maintaining different habitats that we've installed around the Bay Area. And those are ongoing every month. We put we post the dates on those. Yeah, there's as about well. five or six different places that you maintain, don't yeah. you? Uh, I helped you usually. In one. Yeah. yeah, you did. <laughs> so there's, you know, there's a lot of opportunities with that. Um, we have opportunities at the nursery as well for volunteers. So there's an, essentially at the end of the day, every, it's a nonprofit. So everything is uh, is helping our ecosystem. We also provide scholarships um, for under, underserved schools for some kids to participate in camps as well. So uh, I wanted to also uh, thank you for that. I appreciate it. And it'll also be on the blog, so y'all can link in uh, for our Facebook uh, WMNF page, and all this stuff will be on there. You can link in. So I wanted to also just uh, one event that's coming up that I sweet to my heart is the Sweetwater Organic Community Farm, and they're going to have an event uh, January 15th from 1 to 3, and it's about growing perennial foods in your garden. And if you don't grow perennials, you need to start because it's something you put in there and you really don't have to replant it all the time. People are frustrated when they grow a vegetable garden often because it's a, it's an annual growth and it's a one-time shot. But I've had uh, five different types of spinaches. Well, maybe six, six different types of spinaches that I grow all year round, and I don't really do that much. So just that. And for my events next uh, Monday, January 9th, I will not be on the radio because I will be doing a lecture for the Plant City Garden Club. If you live in Plant City, come by. And then next Wednesday, January 11th, I will be at the Temple Terrace Garden Club 
giving You're a the talk. Garden club man. And then a few hours later, I will be at the New World's Brewery giving my third carnivorous plant talk of the week. My goodness, you're, <laughs> you're good at this. If you, you go to the Pints of Science New World Brewery event, it's me and a, two other scientists that are unrelated. You know, the topics could be about anything and they host these events on a monthly basis. Pints of science. That's wonderful. I love that. That's a great place to go too. All right, so we only got four minutes left. Uh, Anita, is there any... Any special stuff you want Words to talk about? Words of encouragement for people who want to rear and raise and watch butterflies. Well, we talked a little about nectar. Just, you know, you just got to plant with what the butterflies are looking for. There's ground covers. There's shade-loving plants. It's, you know, you can plant in any, just about any, any space as you can imagine. Um, one thing that the native plants are really especially uh, important to is our coastal areas, especially for hurricanes. Uh, if you can plant any one tree, that plant an oak. There, um, there are keystone species that support about 600 uh, different species of animals and over 90 species of Lepidoptera in Florida. So, very important food source for birds and and a lot of uh, a, a lot of caterpillars. So, there's just an awful lot of opportunity um, to learn and plant more and and uh, and you'll get a lot more movement in your yard. That's a lovely way of saying a lot more movement in your yard. I love seeing all the uh, the critters in my yard. You know, all the butterflies and the bees mm-hmm. and the... I mean, there's so many different types of bees. There's Over just, 300 wild bees in Florida. It's incredible. Mm-hmm. And people just, uh, you know, it's just mostly their overreaction. I know I have a neighbor that sprays on one side of uh, in my neighborhood, and I don't have a lot of action over there. But on the other side, it's just buzzing all the time. It's fantastic. Well, and a lot of our wild bees don't have stingers, and they live in the ground. They're yeah. not protecting a hive, so they're not, you know, it's not the honeybee. Yeah. Um, but they're better pollinators than the honeybee. And there's an another reason for keep leaving the leaves on the mm-hmm. ground because that's where they live. Mm-hmm. So that's great. And we, of course, want to encourage listeners to, if you see something that creeps and crawls, it doesn't mean it's a bad thing. Mm-hmm. But I will add that yesterday I saw two swarms of termites leaving the ground oh. and I was fingers crossed that they wouldn't come into my place. Yeah, that's not a good one to see. Yeah. All right. So we did get uh, an email Half an hour ago, it's just funny. I wanted to read it to you. Okay. It's from Joellen, who happens to be in the studio next Love to us. Joellen. And she asked that our show become less interesting so she can focus <laughs> on her show that is about to happen. <laughs> she can't concentrate over there. <laughs> and we want to encourage listeners that the next hour, Joellen will be sitting in for Flea and creating the hybrid, the Flea Ellen Show. Oh, that's so great. you guys can listen to that. She does normally art in your ear, which is fantastic. I've been listening to it forever. It is so great. She talks about all the art things that are going on in our community. Before I... Uh, and beyond. Read this uh, last statement. We want to, of course, thanks. Uh, Anita Camacho for all of your expertise in butterflies and what you do for our Central Florida area. And Bill for being here and doing everything else. We love you, Bill, and so grateful to have you. Yes, we are. In addition to working the boards, he also helped answer the phones today. He did everything. On uh, WMNF's Tuesday Cafe, Sean's guest will be talking about freshwater springs in Florida and about how springs are being impacted by development, pollution, and bottled water. So that's coming up tomorrow at 10 with uh, Tuesday morning here on WMNF Tampa.
And if you enjoyed the show and our weekly content, please go to WMNF.org, donating through the tip jar and directing your donation to the Sustainable Living Show. Stay tuned and listen to uh, Joe Ellen over there. And uh, we'll have the Monday music. And if you want to hear more public interest uh, programming, switch over to WMNF HD3 channel, The Source, and listen to today's Tom Hartman Show live. I am Kenny Coogan. And I am Annie Ellis. And if, remember, if you're looking for someone to save the world, look in the mirror. Bye. Bye-bye. You're listening to WMNF Tampa.